no matter how well prepared I might be, or unprepared, as is often the case, I am in this moment, almost each um, discourse, I am, I have a, an upwelling of what we call pity or a little rapture, because I know that, at least in my mind, whether you find it this way or not, I'm about to share the good news. And I feel that every night when I come in and listen to my colleagues, even though there is a there is a, um, a large piece of what we are asked to look at that's not so easy to bear. But it is actually such good news to know that if you make a slight shift, which you have been doing over the course of the retreat, a slight shift from being simply carried along by what might be called the stream of distress, carried along by our mind stream, everything we're thinking about and everything we're worried about, everything we want, everything that is not working in our life, that just to make a slight shift from being carried along by that to noticing it is the beginning of, or the you could say it's the difference between bondage, being bound up, being caught, and freedom. As Sharda introduced last night so beautifully, that was good news that we we have this capacity to be whole, to be embodied, to be here. In fact, I, tonight I would like to call this what we need is here, part two. But our mind continually goes out, starts moving, and it happens so quickly. And if it goes unnoticed, as she described so beautifully, if if whatever that uh, reaction is that may be occurring to one of the six experiences, because really, and I know we've said this in different ways, the entirety of your life, as it actually is lived, is just six experiences. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking or imagining. That's everything. When we are in real time with these six experiences, life is really quite simple. But we don't often stay just with the simple attention to one of those six experiences. There is often some kind of reaction. And this morning, Sharda highlighted, as she did last night as well, that every single experience at one of those six, what we call the doors of perception or senses, five physical senses, one mental, every single experience that we have comes accompanied with, arises with a little tone. May not seem like much. It's either pleasant neither unpleasant or, or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Every single experience. This little piece of, uh, this little data point, another one of those uh, groups of three or five, this is the groups of three feeling tones. We have the three, while I'm on the matter of three, we, James shared the three characteristics, the three marks of existence. And there's the three kinds of misperception that I'll speak of a little bit tonight. These are the three feeling tones. And then there's the three root causes of suffering. Greed, hatred, delusion, which Sharda also mentioned last night. But the whole, you could say, proliferation of drama that plays in our mind, that plays in our life, is a... um, 
a an, an elaborated reaction to these three simple feeling tones. I imagine right now, at some point in the span of this retreat, I've had my own version of this, there was some experience that you experienced as unpleasant or some, actually you saw someone do something or say something. Or as, as sometimes we, we do a lot of, of noticing things in, in the dining hall, noticing what other people are doing. In spite of being meant, in spite of being encouraged to stay secluded in our own experience, something that somebody does or how they go through the lunch line or whether they're moving quickly or not, it, it triggers some kind of uh, knowing, enters our, our eye and it produces just because of, of a whole chain of other little pieces, it produces an unpleasant feeling. Now, whenever I, I've shared this before, but whenever I walk down to the end of the road and I start to get the sense of the horse manure, for me, the horse manure arises with a pleasant association. That's pleasant, as I grew up around horses. So there's a, so it, they're all conditioned, these little reactions. Somebody in the dining room, though, see them, produces an unpleasant feeling. And if that unpleasant feeling is noticed, no, oh, this is unpleasant. It's just an unpleasant feeling, arises, fades. If it goes unnoticed, and usually it does for the first moment, it's followed by, as Sharda was saying, aversion, but it's really first followed by a little not liking. I don't like that. And then not liking is often followed by um, aversion. And meanwhile, this, this little teeny mind moment, we'll call it a mind moment of unpleasantness, begins to there begins this chain reaction that starts building pressure, builds a, a sense of tension. That tension has to go somewhere. Where does it usually go? It goes into what the Buddha called papancha. The tendency, the, I'm, I'm going to try to get the traditional definition, the tendency of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. <laughs> now remember, we haven't gone anywhere. Nothing's happened except a little feeling tone. But our mind has just gone off to the races. And in that little world of the races, there is, at the center of it, we've all referred to this, is this little character, this imagined character called me, who is having this reaction to them. So this is the beginning of othering. This is the beginning of separation. This is the beginning of feeling like we're, we're apart from the flow of life. As they talk about it in the Bhagavad Gita. It's that feeling that you're the one wave that's somehow gotten separated from the ocean. And we feel a little disconnected. And into that little world of our imagination is created the, at least one of the ways that gets created, the, what we call identity or, or ego. The whole little narrative starts wrapping itself around how this is affecting me. And yet the me that we're imagining is not the, the, the fullness of what's sitting here that can never really be put in words. Just, your, just the indescribable experience of being present but it is a version of ourselves that because it's based on uh, a, 
a narrative or a little story. We've talked a lot about the story, but because it's based on a story, it is not particularly, um, it, it, it can't really capture what your immediate and direct experience is. It can only approximate, and it's usually creating a version of ourselves that then uh, is somehow experiencing lack. You know, sometimes the hindrances are talked about as the five experiences of lack, that something's wrong, something's wrong with me. But meanwhile, what we have fallen into is not reality, but we've fallen into virtual reality. I hate to even use this expression, but fake news. And this version of ourselves that plays through our mind, it's called identity view. Buddha called it Sakaya Ditti. Ditti means view, and Sakaya is self. And once we have, once we are living in that view of ourselves, what happens to our immediate and direct experience? What happens to the simple reality of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and then knowing of thinking? What happens to our life actually where we're living. It becomes, um, it becomes, it colors our perception in such a way that it doesn't seem like this is a place that anybody would want to be. And it seems like the only option is to, um, is to do something. And what, a, what does our mind usually do? Let's say the person in the dining hall. The reason I thought of this immediately is, is that this often happens on the third day of the retreat or the second day of the retreat. Is that little trigger, after you've had a period where you're, you settle a little bit, our mind relaxes, it opens. And then some of those, those things that have been held that we haven't, experience, they start to, to emerge. As um, the philosopher Francois Fenelon says, as the light increases, the more we pay attention, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. <laughs> we are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. <laughs> we never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we are filled with horror. But bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So while we're on, on this topic, I, I think the most succinct way of saying what Francois Fenelon said was in the words of, of Bhante Gunaratna, who said, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come to the realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You're no worse than you were yesterday. It's always been this way. You just didn't notice. So what this is pointing to is that this very strong tendency of mind to enter into this world of imagination Mistaking our, mistaking our life for being this, this very insecure, fragile version, reactive version that's playing through our minds. And that 
thing in the in the cafeteria, it turns into sometimes with you know in the flash of a minute, it can turn into what we call the VV. The it starts with just a little unpleasant. It proliferates into that little story about how it's affecting me. It's amazing how when somebody comes into the hall late, how all of a sudden it becomes all about me, my meditation. How did that get personal when somebody comes in the hall late? But this is just another way that, that our reactions to things just start forming this sense of identity. But the, the VV is the little bit elaborated version of our reaction until that whole fragility of ourselves being shaken by this reaction of, of aversion, it, it magnifies into what's called the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, where that person is the, is the, is the you know, bane of your existence, is the, is the reason for your unhappiness, and, if, and, and it gets projected on everything. And so the whole place can become the, the object of our vendetta. All of this is reinforcing a sense of ourselves that is, in a sense, completely imaginary. And when it's not recognized as imaginary, we wander a long time in a little narrow world of trying to figure out how to solve all the many things that are not right. And they're endless. I solve one issue and another one goes. Because all of it's being driven by an identity view that because it's based on thoughts, it can never be secured. So the good news, the good news is that that our freedom, our unsticking from this stream of distress is a split second, a half breath away in any moment. And it is really just, it's simple but not easy. It is really a, a shift, a shifting, not really a shifting. It is simply the arising of that ever available quality that we are cultivating in this retreat, that quality of Noticing, knowing with clear comprehension what it is that's happening in our mind. When I notice this is the Vipassana Vendetta, the, the, opposite, the opposite also proliferates that I know that many of you have been at least for me, I was tormented by this, but it's the Vipassana, it's the VR, the Vipassana romance, where someone really triggered my, a pleasant feeling. Before you know it, I was imagining, I was imagining the the dating and the mating and the marriage and the travel and everything all in a And it all happens so fast. (laughs) When we begin to wake up to what our mind does, we can begin to see that an idea of myself in relationship to someone is not really myself and that someone is not really someone. Once we wake up to notice what our mind is doing, then it can be actually a source of humor, a source of freedom. I think this sense of freedom was captured very beautifully in this poem that I sometimes share on retreats. I I let it rest for a few years because I was overdoing it because I I enjoyed it so much, but I'm 
recycling it, and here it is. This is from George Bilger. They sit around the house. It's called unwise purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man that would wear a French cut silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I used only once or twice, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I barely opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American, conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Spanish hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room, actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, (laughs) and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias, and I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes, on the table where the violin lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the dusty chess set a woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've I've dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. (laughs) And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. (laughs) We may not appreciate that coming out of the tangle of these these, uh, narratives in our mind, coming out of the tangle of our view of self, how liberating it can be. Just notice, even right now, after the last idea of yourself has faded for a moment, And before the next one comes, where you are not for a moment thinking of yourself as this or that, you're not thinking of yourself as a problem to be solved. Not thinking at all for a moment. Notice what your immediate and direct experience is when you don't look ahead or don't look back in your imagination. What we need is here. That's why I named it. It's from the line of a poem from Wendell Berry where he says, 
And I pray, not for no new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and eyes clear. What we need is here. We can wander if we, if we don't wake up to where we are, we wander a long time confused. Because that version of ourselves that plays through our mind lives, and Sharda just gestured this so beautifully, the way she gestured the moving outward. And then she talked about the staying here and feeling that I felt the transmission of the, of the confidence and the happiness that comes from staying here. But when we enter that that world of lack, of the hindrances, of the imagined me, that version of ourselves that plays through our mind and can be noticed, that's the great good news, but that version keeps recreating the sense that I am somebody who has come from the past, who's passing through here, trying to get to the promised land, trying to to reach, trying to go. And what gets so easily overlooked is the promised land is just an idea. There is no such place as tomorrow. No such, no such reality. There is that what we discover when we stop for a moment, there is no future. It's, that's just an idea. I said it on the first night. And in in the same way, there is no past. But yet, as one of my teachers, Punjuji, says, the boulders of the past, of living in our thoughts and feelings about the past, it rests on our chest. Our body reacts to that. And then it feels as though we're not free. You know, his encouragement is wake up to these thoughts of yourself and then the feelings that go with them. The cure for this pain, this weight on your chest, as Sharda was saying so beautifully last night, is in feeling it. Because it's not so much that feeling whatever you're feeling will magically lift, but the very feeling that is and the thoughts that go with it that are, hinder us is there our unawareness of them. Once we are aware of what's happening, we've already arrived at the promised land. There is no higher mountain to climb than knowing that you're knowing and knowing what's happening. So in this moment of noticing, after your last experience has passed and before the next one comes, notice what that's like when you're just here. You have a lot more experience now of getting used to what we call here. What's it like if you don't consult your memory? Anybody willing to say out loud? Quiet. Peace. Empty. Interesting. You can't suffer and be interested in the same moment. Nothing. What happened to all of, what happened to all of your stress when you're not looking back, looking ahead. 
What happened to all your needs and wants? Aren't they all fulfilled? Isn't this what we hope for at the end of the rainbow to say, peace, open, empty, quiet. Peace waits, but we're mostly engaged in something else. We're typically engaged in this stream of distress that associates our well-being with going. The first night, James, getting a little cramp in my leg. The first night, James reminded us of the Buddha talking about this fathom-long body. And the use of that expression, fathom-long body, it came in a, in a comment that the Buddha made to someone, in many ways like us, but in this case, the person who was like us had, at least as the story goes, had lived another lifetime. And when they were living that other lifetime, they were what's called a celestial being or otherwise known as a deva. And the person's, the the deva's name was Rohitasa. And Rohitasa, as many devas do, he had a special power. And his power was to be able to walk long distances very quickly. And yet, as a sentient being, as a being who, is, who, who takes birth and dies, etc., he was subject to, to change and things that are hard to bear. And he wanted to try to, just as each of us does, he was longing for the end of the rainbow, longing for peace. And the way he described it is he wanted to find the end of the world. And so he had a bright idea. His perception, just like all of ours, was colored by confusion. Uh, The confusion that we often fall into is is that uh, we, as Sharda was talking about, very specifically about the chronic uh, association of our happiness with satisfying sense desires. Feeding our senses. The association being that if I experience this, then I'll be happy. And we're, we're actually, we get a little treat. You know, when, you're, when you have the desire for the glory of the, of the bell ringing, the end of the sitting, you hear that bell. And it's, ah. And it's very easy to associate your happiness with having that bell having run that bell having run. But something that we don't notice is that there's many things that I'm not, I won't talk about all of it. I actually stole this from James, proper attribution. But one of the things that we, we don't notice is that that pleasure that comes, that relief that comes, is, uh, is short-lived. It's pleasurable, but because of misperception, we actually think that it is the bell that gave us the pleasant feeling. But what gives us the pleasant feeling is not the bell. What gives us the pleasant feeling is the fading away of that desire. And we're we fall into a case where we think that the secret to having that freedom from that desire depends on satisfying our hunger. The Buddha called that kind of pleasure, he called it worldly happiness. But he also called it the happiness of bondage. Because we get caught in the loop of of having things, getting things, going places, doing things, becoming things. And we get some pleasure, no doubt. So many kinds of pleasure. 
But in the wake of that, what, we're, what seed we're planting in our mind is a state of more desire. And pretty soon, what happens when we are in a state of desire? Getting back to that reaction to the, we have a pleasant image, that Vipassana romance produces a pleasant feeling. There's liking, there's wanting, and then that whole proliferation of the fantasy. What happens to our body during that time? What happens to the present moment? Our body literally enters into a state of freezing, of tension, of suspended happiness, waiting for that future satisfaction that never seems to arrive satisfactorily, because we forget that time is now, but our body gets tighter and tighter. And then when our body gets tighter and tighter, the fantasy continues. The, 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 um, the energy of that has to go somewhere. And we end up uh, disembodied, not really at home. So you've done so much to, to unwind this chronic tendency to go out in search. This is what the, what the Buddha called the second truth, the cause of what turns our, the basic stress of being human into mental suffering is that chronic desire for things to be different than the way they are that expresses itself in this state of craving. So getting back to Rohitasa, he, is, uh, he has this idea, he says, I'm Rohitasa. He's got his story and comes by it honestly. He's, he's the deva. And so our stories are really unique and beautiful, wonderful. The story of our life, and I think each person here, whenever I talk about this, I, get, I see how each person here has a, has a story of their life. And that story is is rich with history and causes. Um, my story is, you know, I'm, um, I'm, this is, I'm a, <laughs> I could go anywhere with this story. <laughs> <laughs> what I immediately began to think of, where I think of each of our stories is I, my, the, my historical uh, uh, cultural past. I'm 60, almost 66 year old, white, Jewish, male, identified. Uh, my, I am the, you could say, the proud grandson of a four foot nine Russian immigrant who came to the U.S. Uh, to escape the pogroms of her village being completely flattened. And so that's a, it, it's a, it's a cool story. It's a cool, a cool way of describing uh, and a satisfy, a relatively satisfying way of describing how I came here. And you have your own version of that. And Rohitasa had his own version. And I know that, that my story has no beginning and in that way, when I reflect on that, I realize that uh, I don't. My story doesn't exactly capture, well, it, it does if I look at it more closely, it doesn't capture that I am not in any way separate from anything that ever happened to me. So in that way, any identity I have can never be exist independently from all that made me. Yet, the version of my, that plays through my mind often, especially the one that is driven by these the hindrances and desire, the self-view, is that I am somehow separate from all these causes and conditions. 
And somehow I have to, I've gotten, I'm that wave that's gotten separated from the ocean and I've got to find my way back to the ocean. And I've got to to do a lot of work to get there. I've got to go. I've got to really hustle. The Rohitasa's feeling, you know, it's beautiful where he came from and all that, but he's saying, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm separate here and I'm, and I've, I've got to find my way home. And, and so he figured he would try to walk home, try to get there by going. I got so many streams running through my mind right now. Please forgive me. And he walked for a hundred years, and then he died. And he and he didn't arrive. And then he was reborn again, and he came back, and had the good fortune to meet the Buddha and meet the Buddha Dharma. And that's really what we're we're all meeting the Buddha here. The Buddha means awake. But he met the historical Buddha, and he said, you know, in this last life, I was Rohitasa, the deva, and I, I could walk so fast, I could reach, you know, somebody could shoot an arrow, and I could reach that target faster than the arrow would reach there. And I tried to walk to the end of the world. I wanted to get to the end of this cycle of, of so much uh, suffering, so much stress of so much dissatisfaction. And I wonder, Lord Buddha, is it possible to reach the end of the world by going? Of course, the, what's the obvious answer? No. But then the Buddha said something really cool. He said, only those who reach the end of the world become liberated. But then he uttered the passage. Within this fathom long body with its senses and perceptions lies the world. Within this fathom long body with its senses and perceptions lies the cause of the world. That world that we keep spinning out, that we keep creating in our imagination. That idea that I am I have come from the past, passing through here on my way to the future. We don't often notice until we start to pay attention to our mind. That that narrative assumes that there is a past and there's a future. But is is it not true that that there is only, you could call it an unfolding now, that the past is an idea, a memory, arising now. Future is another idea called worry, as Sharda was going, or excitement, but it's all happening here. There is only this. And what do we find when we're here and we're not jumping out of ourselves in search? We're not going. What is there? Open. Anyway, getting back to the passage. Within this fathom long body lies the world. With senses and perception lies the world, lies the cause of the world. When when the objects of the senses get triggered, there is this reaction, this little chain reaction. 
pleasant, liking, wanting, becoming. Pretty soon, we are causing the world of our imagination. Getting back to if we can notice the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the neither pleasant or unpleasant, the pleasant experience for what it is, it enhances it. The unpleasant experience just the way it is, it eases it because we're not so reactive. The neither pleasant or unpleasant experience has the fragrance when it's felt, it leaves the fragrance of peace, of equanimity. Within this fathom long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world. Within this fathom long body lies the end of the world. The end of the world of me making, of my making, of othering, of jumping out in search. And within this fathom long body lies the path leading to the end of the world. That path of going is very narrow and it is fraught with insecurity. It's it's fraught with uncertainty. If I associate the end of the world with going there, there is always the worry I might not get there. Any association of my happiness with how things turn out with outcomes, with goals. If I associate my happiness and freedom with that, I am left in a state of anxiety because I don't know how things will turn out. On the other hand, if I notice that my mind is going out, if I let my noticing, and you let your noticing be the reminder of your increasingly, I hope, love of being right here, then that hindrance turns into what Trungpa Rinpoche calls the manure of Bodhi. It becomes the cause of your awakening. It becomes the, the, uh, your way home, even the difficulties. Because each moment that you wake up to where you are and to what's actually happening, as Sharda was saying over and over, just what's happening, just what's happening. You are coming out of this narrow world of your imagination, narrow world of the, of the you that lives in time. The you that sit here, sits here, the non-imaginary you, not even a you. What is your experience of yourself? Not the idea of yourself, but the direct experience in real time. Is it describable? Is it, is it small? Is it large? Does it have any color or shape? It, does it have an inside or an outside? Is there any, are you bound in any way here in real time if you don't consult your imagination? So an idea of yourself is not yourself. Those of you who've sat with me know that I, that I, the the most succinct example of, of the difference between the version of ourselves that plays in our mind that's always going, that's always becoming, that's always obsessing about what's next. The difference between that and, and the, the unique expression of life that's, ex- that's, exper- that's sitting right here 
is, I think, best expressed by James J. Audubon, who said, if there is a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. No matter what the riches of my story and your story, it cannot capture this. It cannot capture this. And it is a, it is, the, the joy, the good news of the Dharma, that we can moment by moment wake out of the tangle of the imaginary sense of ourselves, and then enter into the stream. Of, our, of the direct experience of ourselves that's not so easily describable, but is eminently experienceable. It does not require that you keep reminding yourself of your roles. They show up when needed. As I often joke, based on my friend Bonnie Durant, she calls me an OG, original gangster, because I'm one of the original teachers at Spirit Rock. And then she also calls herself the sage on the stage. That's an identity view. It's a view. So we have our roles. I have my role. You know, tonight I'm the so-called sage on the stage. You know, this afternoon, I got a little tired toward the end of my meetings. And in my mind, I acted like an idiot. I was not so skillful. And if I were to depend on that idea of myself as the sage on the stage, think it had any absoluteness in nature, I would just deflate when I would see the way that, that I experienced myself this afternoon. That identity view, based on anything, it changes depending on who we're with. I always say, I'm the, here I'm the sage on the stage, but then I go home. <laughs> and my, my daughter could care less. If, if I'm lucky enough to, to get her attention and for her to say hello. She's 16. <laughs> I know that comes with the territory. She's very dear, though. Don't get me wrong. But the I- identities based on role, not so reliable. It can't capture the direct experience of myself. When I'm present here, I, I can't tell on present evidence without, if I don't look, if I don't consult my memory, and I'm happy I have a memory that I can consult because it comes in handy, but I think it is possible for us and our most happy moments is when we're not busy consulting our memory so much to define ourselves. Because I know in real time, I don't know what, I don't know my age. I don't know my gender. I don't know my, I don't know anything in real time. None of my identities that are so important to acknowledge and, and to be sensitive to in my life and sensitive to others because there's so much suffering caused from, um, from excessive um, solidification of views. All of them, we each have the freedom to experience ourselves as not even reducible to our most cherished identity. That even that, at some part of our nature, is an insult to the grandeur, the intrinsic or primordially primordial peace that lives in you as you as the very nature of your mind. The end of the world. 
and even any doubt that comes into your mind about what I'm saying, if it's noticed, it's just doubting mind, another expression of your nature, the wanting mind, another expression of your nature, the aversive mind, another expression. Of course, if it goes unnoticed, the first trigger or the first thought, it leads to more thoughts. It leads to a chain of associations. One Tibetan teacher calls the chain of delusion. Because when we get carried away by the, those thoughts and desires and objects of worry or restlessness, or, then we forget. We forget what's always already here. Why we practice is two things. To directly experience that and know with confidence and joy that what you need is here. As well, second reason, to be able to use everything that comes into your life the joys, the sorrows, the, wholes- the wholesome states, the unwholesome states, using them all as our reminder, our manure, our path, the capacity to actually know what's happening, to come out of the narrow world that sends us on this kind of narrow, this endless search to come out of it. I think it's expressed beautifully by this poem, and I'll end with this, from the poet named David Budbill. And it's entitled, Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago, said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl, I say, that's right. Every day, climbing up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around. Say, hey, how you doing? (laughs) Say, nice bowl. (laughs) May we all have an experience of the thinning of our crying and moaning, which is we always want to meet that with tender mercy, but may we all at least be able to relate to the crying and moaning and to have a thinning of our feeling of separateness and contraction, the contraction of the imagined me. And with the thinning of that sense of separate self, the filling of our heart with love and everyone else. When we come out of that tangle, where is the separation between us? May all of us discover the end of the world. May all of us stay exactly where we are What we need is here.
Thank you for going on the ride with me. Going nowhere. <laughs> anyway, so we have another 30 minutes of, of um, arriving with each step, with each movement and transition. Um, don't be tricked by your idea that what's next will be better. This is it. Thank you so much for your attention. Oh, oh yes, there will be some chanting at the next sitting. And come, one, come all. <laughs>